0: We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships
1: with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. A controversial Trump-era policy continues at the border. We think
2: the decision is misguided. It will perpetuate an illegal and racist policy.
1: I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Why there's a shortage of baby formula and what's being done about it locally?
3: The shortage has actually been going on for a while but it got very acute in just the last couple of weeks.
1: What the economy means for your personal finances and the experiences of women who have survived cancer share their stories in a new play. That's ahead on Midday Edition. A federal judge has blocked the Biden administration's bid to end Title 42. The move late last week would have done away with the Trump administration's controversial pandemic-era policy, which was originally set to expire today. The extension of Title 42 has prompted strong reaction from immigration advocates. Here's Melissa Crow, director of litigation with the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies, who called the ruling a gut punch. We
2: think the decision is misguided. It will perpetuate an illegal and racist policy and continue to put a lot of vulnerable people's lives in danger.
1: Joining us now with more is KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, welcome back to the program. Hello. First things first, why was this effort to end Title 42 blocked?
5: Procedural grounds, really. A federal judge ruled that the Biden administration failed to go through the required notice and comment process before terminating the policy. It's actually very similar to what happened when the Biden administration tried to get rid of Remain in Mexico, another controversial Trump era asylum policy. Uh, In that case, the judge also ruled that the administration didn't follow the proper procedures. And this pattern is really starting to frustrate immigration advocates who say Biden just can't or won't follow up on promises to restore the country's asylum system.
1: What prompted the Biden administration to try to do away with this policy in the first place?
5: I mean, that's a little tricky to answer because there's kind of two answers to that question, right? It's important to remember that Title 42 is, on its face, a public health order issued by the CDC. Officially, uh, the reason it was terminated or tried to be terminated was because the CDC determined that we're in a good enough place with the pandemic to lift Title 42. But Title 42, we know, has not really been about public health. It's from the very beginning, the CDC's top doctors lobbied against it, but they were overruled by the Trump administration. Uh, The Biden administration has kept it in place for well over a year, despite calls from members of his own party to end it, Uh, largely, I think, because he didn't want to appear weak on immigration. But in the last few months, he's faced so much public pressure to end it that he finally moved forward and announced this uh, May 23rd end date.
1: What's been the response from immigration advocates to this ruling?
5: Most of the advocates I've talked to say they are not surprised but still devastated by the decision. They're not surprised because the Trump-appointed federal judge on the case essentially told everyone how he planned to rule a few weeks ago. Uh, They're devastated because the decision means that thousands of migrants who have been turned away from the border by Title 42 have ended up being victims of crime in Mexico. Right after our federal government turns them away, they've been involved in robberies, assaults, rapes, and kidnappings. They've also continued to be systematically barred from pursuing their legal right to request asylum in the U.S. So they're, they're more concerned about the, the impact that the ruling will have on, on these vulnerable population.
1: So what does this mean for migrants and asylum seekers at our southern border?
5: Well, it, it, like I said, it, it means they'll continue to, to largely be blocked from requesting asylum in the U.S. Uh, they, they'll continue to live in dangerous cities while waiting for, for their legal right to pursue a claim. Um, it also means that you know some will grow so desperate that they will try to cross the border illegally. It's, it's an established fact based on the CBP's own numbers and various studies that Title 42 incentivizes migrants to cross the border illegally because it shuts off. The only legal pathway. And we've seen it here in San Diego with uh, drowning deaths from people who try to swim uh, along the ocean and an increase in horrible injuries from people t- to try to jump the fence. I mean, last year, uh, last fiscal year really was the deadliest year on record for illegal border crossings. And Title 42 was a big part of that.
1: A coalition of states led the lawsuit that ended up keeping Title 42 in place. What can you tell us about this and why they say it needs to be kept in place?
5: Well, part of the argument was on procedural grounds, which which the judge really took to heart. Other arguments are that lifting Title 42 would allow a lot of asylum seekers into the country, and that would place an undue burden on cities and states who would have to pay to house and feed some of them. Uh, personally, I don't think there's a lot of weight to those arguments because, I mean, we've already been doing that for, for decades in this country before Title 42. Title 42 is a pandemic era policy, and it's really relatively new in terms of border enforcement tactics. So, I mean, we, we've lived in a you know, non-Title 42 world for, for decades, and it hasn't really been a huge issue in terms of undue burden on, on certain states.
1: So how has the White House responded to this setback? I mean, behind the scenes, we know that efforts to address Title 42 have been a difficult political situation for Biden.
5: Well, the entire border situation has been a a difficult political situation for Biden and a frustrating one for people who live along the borderlands. Uh, In terms of a response, I think, I mean, the administration on the day of the ruling, they issued a statement saying that the administration disagrees with the decision and they plan to appeal. I don't have a timeline or, or, or what that appeal would look like. But on the political front, I mean, like we said before, right, it's, it's another example of Biden not following through on a campaign promise, right? It's important to note that even though Trump is no longer in office, a lot of his policies are still with us. And, and so far, the Biden administration has been either unwilling or unable to end those policies. So politically, it's it's not painting him in a particularly good light heading into the midterms.
1: I've been speaking with KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, thanks for joining us.
5: Oh, Jay, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
6: The CEO of Abbott Laboratories apologized this weekend for his company's role in the nationwide baby formula shortage. An Abbott plant shutdown over quality control concerns is one of the major factors contributing to the shortage. Meanwhile, the first plane load of formula from Germany landed in the United States yesterday, and the Defense Production Act has been mobilized to give priority to baby formula manufacturers. But families with hungry infants who can't find formula don't have time to wait, and the old-time practice of breast milk sharing is having a resurgence. Concerned mothers who are lactating are donating milk, mostly to families reaching out for help on the Internet. And joining me is LA Times reporter Sonia Sharp. Sonia, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
6: Now, as baby formula supplies started disappearing from supermarket shelves, weren't most parents actually searching the web for formula and not human breast milk?
3: Well, that's right. You know, uh, the shortage has actually been going on for a while, but it got very acute. In just the last couple of weeks and that's the point at which a lot of formula feeding families found instead of having to go to several stores or kind of go on the internet and shop out of state or you know a lot of other things that people had already been doing as formula became more scarce they just couldn't find it at all and that's really when a lot of these uh, social media accounts that new parents follow sort of jumped in and said you know, if you have something connect with somebody else here in the comments who um, has what you need. And you profile
6: a mother who did begin sharing her extra breast milk supplies when she heard about the need on Instagram. Could you share her story with us?
3: Right. So I spoke with Diana Granados, who's a mom, a first time mom here in Los Angeles. She has a six month old son. And she follows one of these accounts that's really popular with us new moms of babies. And, um, she saw one of these call-outs, right? Precisely. If you have formula, like please connect with somebody else who's in need. And she didn't have any formula, but she's been nursing and pumping and did have an excess of breast milk. And she thought, well, I have this, let me see what happens. And she kind of went right in the comments and said, I have some breast milk to share. I'm here. And she said within minutes, she had competing, uh, requests from different parents who were just very, very anxious for anything they could get and were ready to come and pick up the milk.
6: Much of the sharing is happening just from donor to needy family on the internet. I'm wondering, are the donors charging for the breast milk?
3: Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. So it's hard to quantify exactly how much is happening where because Of course, there are formal milk banks, both uh, for profit and non profit milk banks that people donate and even sell to on the for profit side and and have for a long time. And there's always been a sort of niche market of informal milk sharing. In general, uh, what I've seen recently during this uh, crisis has all been for free, but you can definitely go on Craigslist and find people selling for $2 or $3 an ounce. Um, And you can also find people selling uh, to for-profit milk banks, many do pay, but in general, it's free. And I think most parents who do it either during this crisis or prior to this crisis do it out of a sense of, you know, I have more than I need and I want to share with a baby who doesn't have.
6: We'll hear more about those milk banks from the head of the University of California Health Milk Bank that's coming up in just a few minutes. Sonia, I want to ask you if you could remind us about the history of mothers supplying their breast milk to other people's infants, because that practice has a checkered past, doesn't it?
3: Well, it does have a checkered past, but it also just has a very long past. I mean, it's probable that we were sharing milk before we were even human beings, right? It goes back that far. Um, and there definitely are rich cultural practices of milk sharing. For example, um, in Judaism, there's a belief that or a tradition that every uh, convert to Judaism is a descendant of somebody who was nursed by our matriarch, Sarah, not a, a relative of hers, but just you know a stranger who needed. And in Islam, there's actually a, a rich tradition around milk sharing that you actually form a kinship. Uh, almost as though you were blood kin with somebody if you if you have nursed them. So it does have that kind of very beautiful tradition, but also of course there's millennia of poor women becoming wet nurses for rich women, um, often to the detriment of their own babies. And uh, during slavery in the United States, there was a horrible practice of enslaved women being forced to nurse. Uh, the children of their enslavers, often to the detriment of their own children. And in fact, many of their own children starved through that practice. So that's a, it's a very ugly history that goes along as well.
6: And doesn't the need for baby formula itself have a definite socioeconomic aspect too?
3: Well, yes, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you asked that because I think it often gets overlooked uh, in this conversation. We know that the vast majority of birthing people say that they want to nurse their own children. But when we look even a month or three months later, those who are still nursing versus those who are no longer nursing cuts very strongly on socioeconomic and racial lines, right? And it's the same people who are marginalized in so many other ways, including with uh, maternal mortality, infant mortality, all the other health metrics that go along in this constellation around birth and early parenthood. The same thing is happening with uh, the ability to nurse your own child. Often that has to do with access to paid family leave. It has to do with access to uh, good and consistent support and supplies around lactation. And we also know that this is true. If we look at the, uh, WIC program, right, which is the special supplemental program, nutritional program for women, infants, and children, which is a food and nutrition program for people living out or near poverty with young kids, and that program pays for about half of the formula that's sold in the U.S., right? So that alone tells us just how closely this issue is tied to uh, poverty and how much more impacted the poorest people are in this issue.
6: Now, Abbott Laboratory says its closed baby formula plant is coming back online, but how long is it going to take them to get formula back on the supermarket shelves?
3: That's also a great question. Uh, it's going to be a little while is the short answer. They've just entered a consent decree with uh, the FDA to reopen the plant. They've said it will take about two weeks from the time of reopening to start any production at all. And it could take up to eight weeks after that for those products to be on the shelves. So we're looking at you know either the end of July or early August. So Sonia,
6: after reporting on this story... If you were a parent searching for formula or breast milk for your infant,
3: what would you do? I think number one, contact WIC, especially if you get WIC, but even if you don't, uh, they really are very close to the ground on this and they are very urgently wanting to help. Um, Definitely, if you have access to a pediatrician, contact your pediatrician they can give you guidance on where to look for formula. If they have any connection to help you, they will. And if there is absolutely nothing else to give your baby, they can give you good, sound, scientific guidance on what you can give in the interim to keep your baby safe.
6: I've been speaking with LA Times reporter Sonia Sharp. Sonia, thank you very much.
3: Thank you so much.
1: With that severe baby formula shortage on store shelves, many parents are hoping they can get what they need from milk banks. One that opened during the pandemic at UC San Diego provides donor breast milk to neonatal intensive care units for medically fragile infants and also sells milk by the ounce. Dr. Lisa Stellwagen is the bank's executive director and a professor of pediatrics at UCSD. Dr. Stellwagen, welcome.
7: Thank you so much for having me, Jade.
1: How has the formula shortage impacted the UC Health Milk Bank?
7: When this all hit the media, the, the worry and the concern really escalated. And over the past two weeks, we've had an increase in inquiries about purchasing donor milk for families at home. The remarkable part of this from the Milk Bank's point of view has been this outpouring of interest in donation from the families in our community, just a five-fold increase in inquiries for um, wanting to donate milk and help other families.
1: And I want to ask you a few questions about the shortage. I mean, what guidelines is the American Academy of Pediatrics giving to families now in response to the formula shortage, uh, just in terms of do's and don'ts?
7: So as a a rough guideline, the um, AP looks at newborns to age six months is a fragile population where you must be more careful about what you feed your child and then babies six to 12 months in somewhat of a different group. So let's start with that. So if you have a child over the age of six months, healthy child, does not have special nutritional needs, you have a little bit more option. You can, of course, switch brands and try a different formula. Um, You could, on a short-term basis, use a toddler formula, which is formulated for babies over age one. And then when you can not switch back to your normal milk that you feed your baby, you also could in a pinch switch to whole cow's milk to give to a six-month-old because six-month-olds are also eating other food, food, um, stuffs. Um, you want to be careful, not with these aged children to use a plant-based milk, to not use any kind of a homemade, um, milk formula that you've created yourself and never, ever dilate, dilute milk by adding water that can lead to severe, electrolyte disturbances. Now let's, let's say, however, you have a a young child from newborn to six months, you have to be more careful. This is their exclusive diet and, and they need to be given um, appropriate infant formula. So first thing is um, you can always switch products. As long as you have a healthy child from one company to another, most children don't seem to mind that at all. If there's a taste difference, you can sometimes, you could Start with your current milk and add a little bit of the new milk and then fool the baby by changing, slowly changing the bottles over to the new product. Do not, in this age group, use whole milk. Do not use toddler formula and never, as I mentioned, dilute formula or make your own own product. And if you're in a critical situation, always feel free to reach out to your pediatrician or your clinic, your local WIC office, get somebody to help you so that you're not struggling and unable to feed your child.
1: You know, we're seeing stories of people connecting online and sharing breast milk. How is that milk different from what the milk bank provides?
7: What we call in medicine informal milk sharing, where a family might offer raw milk untested to another family is something that the American Academy of Pediatrics discourages because milk is a biologic substance. And much like blood or another tissue, it carries viruses and bacteria, and it could transmit Infection, although I'll be albeit, albeit that's very rare, but we discourage informal milk sharing. Now a approved milk bank is very different. We like a blood bank do put our donors through an intensive, rigorous screening process. We check their blood for infections like HIV or hepatitis. We check with the doctor and make sure everything's safe. We ask the donor many, many questions before we accept the frozen milk. And then all that milk that we accept is um, pasteurized or heat treated, which kills bacteria in the milk and would prevent any uh, foodborne illness and that type of thing. So it's a very rigorous process involving donor screening and the screening of the milk and a lot of safety steps before we provide this milk to hospitals or families to feed babies at home.
1: Tell me why breast milk is so important for low birth weight and medically fragile infants.
7: So we have about 10 or 20 years of data showing that uh, if a baby is born prematurely, less than three pounds, we call these babies very low birth weight infants. They have, as you can imagine, many struggles. They're in the hospital for many months. And what we feed them, the nutrition we provide is very important. And we've known for many years that mother's own milk is the very best for them. But it turns out if you give these tiny babies infant formula before they Um, reach the time that they're ready to go home, they can have a devastating bowel injury called necrotizing endocolitis. Um, Just the name kind of stirs fear in the heart of NICU staff. It's a um, a compromise of the bowel where the baby can actually have dead bowel and need to have surgery. And of the children that go to surgery, um, a third of them will die. And this happens to about four or 5% of these very low birth weight babies. But if they get their mother's own milk, if they get, um, if there's any shortfall and they get pasteurized donor milk, the chance of them getting necrotizing enterocolitis is, is is greatly reduced.
1: Mm. You know, not every mom can breastfeed or even produce enough milk to nourish their baby. Can you talk about some of the reasons that is, and why donor milk is so important? Again,
7: yeah, I I think we always have to take a step back. Um, breast milk feeding is. Um, what we recommend is op- for the optimal health of the child and the, and the mother. But healthy full-term babies, they do just fine on formula. And breastfeeding doesn't work for everyone. There are women and families who decide not to breastfeed their children, and we need to support them in that. But I think that one of the things that this formula shortage is highlighting is that there are a lot of families who do want to breastfeed, and they didn't get the support in the hospital perhaps. They didn't get support after they leave home. They don't have a supportive work environment and they fail to reach their breastfeeding goals. And it's really a struggle for them. And they feel bad about it often for a very long time. And we need to step up as a society and support families better to succeed with breastfeeding their child, if that's what they'd like to do.
1: I've been speaking with Lisa Stellwagen, Executive Director of UC Health Milk Bank and a professor of pediatrics at UCSD. Dr. Stellwagen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Jade.
4: KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places.
6: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. Stock market watchers are hopeful today that a rally is shoring up prices and ending the downward trend on Wall Street. President Biden's comments about possibly lifting Trump-era tariffs on China seems to have encouraged investors. But even if you're not a stock market watcher, there are still big questions looming about the economy. Will rising interest rates eventually bring down inflated prices in the supermarket and for housing? or will higher rates stall the economy into a recession? And what do those possible outcomes actually mean for your family's finances? Joining me to talk about those questions is Chase Peckham, Director of Community Outreach for the San Diego Financial Literacy Center. And Chase, welcome to the program. Thank
8: you so much for having me.
6: Now, when you talk with people and families about finances, what surprises you the most?
8: Nothing surprises me anymore. What used to surprise me uh, is the lack of really financial understanding in general. Um, and I'm not talking stock markets. Uh, we're talking about just everyday household budgets. You know, businesses they follow very strict budgets, uh, and if they don't follow strict budgets, they can go out of business. And the goal of businesses are to make a, a financial profit. So. Why don't we do the same in our households? The problem is is we just aren't taught this at a young age unless we're lucky that our parents sat down with us and really coached us.
6: You know, there were some things that helped us cope during the pandemic. I'm thinking of things like extra entertainment costs on TV and maybe getting restaurant deliveries all the time. What are some areas, therefore, that people might need to reexamine to save money now?
8: For sure, you mentioned Uber Eats and those kinds of things. I mean, that those cost quite a bit. I mean, you do get a lot from it. I mean, you don't have to go to the place, but it's going to cost you an extra ten dollars. Uh, and when you throw that into the fact that the cost of food is going up, so the cost of whatever your normal dish was is going up. Throw that in, and you know you're going to have what normally would cost a family of four fifty dollar dinner is a hundred dollars. So much of that has to be. Curbed. You have to just basically, if you're married and you, and you have a family, have a meeting, discuss it. What are the things that we are doing that we can save money on? So if you had Disney Plus during the pandemic and you've been watching it like crazy, but now you're working and going to school and you're not watching it as much, is it worth the $4.99 or $10.99 a month that you're paying? It might not. Taking a look at those different things that you have, like Netflix and all those, you got to take a look, take an inventory of where you're spending your money and what you're spending your money on, which can help then have you make more choices on where that money needs to be spent.
6: Now, there's been a lot of news that increases in interest rates have made mortgages more expensive, but that's not the only thing interest rates affects, is it? Absolutely not. In
8: fact, when in 2010, after the 2008 crash, there, there were laws that were put in place for the consumer to regulate credit. And what a lot of the credit card industry did is they took away that fixed APR, that fixed rate, and made all of them a variable rate. So, when the interest rates go up, if you haven't noticed, your interest rate on your credit card has probably gone up. Whether you have made payments on time or not, All those interest rates are now variable, and that can make it extraordinarily expensive to keep revolving debt on those credit cards.
6: Now, summer is on the way, and there are a lot of families looking forward to vacations that they haven't taken in quite some time. But again, inflation is playing a role here too, right?
8: Absolutely. Again, uh, many people that I've spoken to who planned on taking vacations have decided not to uh, and and decided to do a staycation or do a camping trip or do something a little bit different because of the cost of the airlines. The travel industry, prices are crazy. I was talking to a friend who owns a hotel and they've had the best business they've had in 20 years. Uh, So they said just people want to go away.
6: One thing you've talked about with your work at the San Diego Financial Literacy Center is that even small changes can have a sizable impact on our budgets. Can you talk more about that?
8: Yeah. And, and basically that comes down to, again, I'm going to say decision-making, but decision-making is based off of what? Information. And we have to have that information. So the only way we can do that is figuring out where we're going to spend our money, how we're going to spend our money. And so think of it like this. We, you talked a little bit about summer vacations if you were going to take a road trip, you've got to plan it out, right? You've got to know where you're going, where you're going to stay, and you've got to know where you're starting from when you start that GPS. It's the same thing. That's what a financial budget does. It helps you
6: create a roadmap for your spending and your saving. For families with kids, it can be especially hard to make budgets work. What's your advice for families with kids?
8: As a parent to a 14 and 12-year-old, I can tell you that it doesn't change. The ages don't change. You think, well, I don't have to pay for daycare anymore. Well, you know what? (laughs) It's going to be something else. But you've got to decide what is really, really important to you and what they do. And and that comes down to whether it's travel sports or what extracurriculars there are. Uh, Sometimes, as we talk about needs versus wants, you have to take a look at what those absolute needs are and then take take a look at the wants. Talking to your children about money goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of being surprised by the lack of financial education. And the best way, especially with children, is, is sit down with them and explain that decisions have to be made. Mom and dad's Grandparents, we have to make decisions every single day about our money. And so why not teach the kids those values in a young age as well and fill them in on how things are going? That can be difficult for a lot of people because that may just not be the way that you did things and that that's for the adults and not for the kids to worry about. But we're really doing a disservice if we don't sit down and discuss with our children the decisions that we make for the better of our families.
6: And I've been speaking to Chase Peckham. Community Outreach Director with the San Diego Financial Literacy Center. Chase, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
1: When National Guard members and reservists deploy, a federal law is supposed to preserve their civilian jobs and benefits. But in some states, government employees can't access those protections, and the issue now rests with the Supreme Court. For American Homefront, Carson Frame reports.
9: Army Reservist Leroy Torres came back from Iraq in 2008 with severe lung and brain injuries, the result of months he spent living near a massive open-air burn pit. When he tried to return to his civilian job as a state trooper in Texas, Torres couldn't keep up. A chronic cough, extreme fatigue, headaches, and memory problems meant he often missed work but he thought the highway patrol would work to accommodate his disability.
4: Here I'm thinking in my head, well, I'm going to be taken care of. You know, there's laws that protect us, that uh, with with my experience and my education, I'll be able to at least finish my six years that I was hoping to finish with the department.
9: Batora says the agency didn't accommodate him. He eventually resigned and didn't get all of his benefits. So he sued in state court, invoking his rights under a federal law called USERA, the Uniformed Services Employment and Reemployment Rights Act. Texas argues that it worked with Torres and didn't violate his rights. The state also says it's immune from the suit. Torres's case is now before the U.S. Supreme Court.
4: I had never just thought that it was going to be uh, this difficult.
9: Torres's attorney, Brian Lawler, says there are a handful of states that won't allow individuals to sue them under UCERA. At issue is the balance of power between states' rights and federal authority.
0: The underlying issue is one that could potentially affect up to tens of thousands of Reserve and Guard personnel who are employed by state agencies, some of whom have the right to sue their state, some of whom don't.
9: More than a quarter of all UCERA claims are filed against public sector employers, according to the Labor Department. And the federal government wants to make sure service members can bring cases.
10: Because otherwise we won't be able
9: to raise an army. Susanna Sherry is a professor emerita at Vanderbilt Law School.
10: That's the the government's sort of main argument for why this particular statute was passed to ensure that uh, people would feel comfortable
9: joining the reserves and being called up because they would know that they would come back to a job. Officials from the Texas Attorney General's office wouldn't comment on the Torres case. But in its brief, Texas argues that former service members have rights under UCERA. The issue is who gets to sue the state for employment violations.
10: Texas is not arguing that Congress can't pass UCERA or that Congress can't tell states that they have to abide by USERA. What they are arguing is you can't enforce U.S.A.R.A. through
9: a private individual suit. You gotta do it some other way. Texas argues that individual service members should bring their U.S.A.R.A. complaints to the U.S. Department of Justice and try to persuade the department to file suit on their behalf. But advocates say those suits rarely happen. Kevin Hollinger is the legislative director for the Enlisted Association of the National Guard of the United States.
0: The DOJ is extremely short-handed right now, and they don't take most of the cases that come to them. So it becomes a very large problem very rapidly, and it's not easily resolved. Even if it does rise to the level and DOJ does take it, we're still talking about years for people to get jobs back.
9: Leroy Torres has long since shelved his dream of returning to work at the Texas Department of Public Safety. His duty right now, he says, is to protect other veterans who face employment violations.
4: It's been burdensome, but knowing that it's not only affects me, that it affects my fellow brothers and sisters who have served a dual role, you know, that gives me more uh, momentum, you know, to stay in this effort.
9: The Supreme Court is due to rule on Torres's case this summer.
1: That was Carson Frame for American Homefront.
6: Five months ago, California unveiled a program to help low-income Californians eliminate asthma triggers in their homes. But five months later, families are still struggling to get these services. In the Central Valley, Maddie Bolaños reports for The California
2: Report.
9: I cheap I Samantha.
2: It's a warm Monday evening in Madeira. Maria Rubio's youngest kids are playing a video game in their living room. The windows are closed and the blinds are drawn to keep the heat out and the house cool. But Rubio worries about what they can't keep out. Rubio points to a corner in her bedroom where black clusters of mold are forming. Rubio and her five kids have suffered with asthma for years. She says the doctors told her there were a number of things that could trigger asthma, like dust mites, mold, and cockroaches. We walk through the hallway and into the kitchen, where she kneels down to show me the wood under the sink. It's expanding due to humidity, which is another asthma trigger. She says she asked her landlord to change it, but they just put in another wood panel and painted over it. The Rubio family is among roughly 2 million low-income Californians who have health insurance coverage from Medi-Cal and have been diagnosed with asthma. Some will benefit from a new state program that aims to reduce asthma by offering remediation services, like removing mold, installing air purifiers, and even replacing carpeting, blinds, and mattresses. The asthma efforts are part of an $8 billion initiative to transform Medi-Cal and target the state's sickest and most expensive patients. But getting the services has proven to be more difficult than expected. Kevin Hamilton is the director of the Central California Asthma Collaborative, the organization leading these efforts in the San Joaquin Valley.
0: The thing that, that bothers me the most is it's more cumbersome for the patient.
2: Take the Rubio family. To get help, they would first need to get a referral from a medical provider. From there, their health plan would have to approve the referral. Once it's been approved, the partnering community-based organization would visit their home to determine what services are needed. Then, the organization sends the assessment back to the health plan for one final approval before it can move forward with the services. I asked Hamilton how many people in the Valley have been referred to him since the start of the program on January 1st.
0: One. Wow, okay. That's what we're saying, just one.
2: One referral from the five health plans his organization contracts to deliver these services. That's out of the thousands of eligible Medi-Cal patients across five Central Valley counties, according to J.C. Cooper, the California Medicaid director. She acknowledges the program's slow start, but says it's expected. But I think
1: identifying individuals, training providers to um, make referrals for new services, education and outreach to providers and beneficiaries, um, all of those things take a little bit of time to get nuanced and
5: implemented.
2: Back in Madeira, Maria Rubio is stirring up some chorizo and eggs for dinner. She says a community health worker told her about the services and she thinks they could be really helpful. But in order to qualify, the family would generally need to get a referral. But Rubio is hesitant to go to the doctor because of bad experiences in the past. It's one more obstacle the state faces in helping families that need these services the most. That was Maddie Bolianos for the California
6: Report.
1: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. The inspiration for the new play Red Jasper has very personal roots for Michael Madden. His sister is a breast cancer survivor, and her experiences led him to interviewing dozens of other women who often shared similar stories about their cancer experiences. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando spoke with playwright Michael Madden about the process of creating his play and getting its world premiere at Lamplighter's Community Theater in La Mesa this month.
10: So, Michael, you have a new play, Red Jasper, and it's opening this month at Lamplighter. So give us a little sense of what this is about.
0: My sister had breast cancer years ago, and in the process, I heard her tell me a number of things that people said or did around her that were off-putting to her, you know, things that people said that they shouldn't have said or things that people did or didn't do that they should have. And so I decided to write a play about a love story, and somehow that kind of creeped into it. So I ended up interviewing over 40 breast cancer survivors, and uh, I asked most of them the same questions. And I kept hearing the similar responses that were said with a lot of emotion, even though these things had happened maybe months, even years ago. And I realized how many times people just don't know the right things to do or say around people with cancer. They're well-intentioned people. They just don't always know what to do. So I compiled a long list of things. Some were tragic. Some were sad. Some were funny. And I incorporated into the script. And it just kind of turned into a whole different play that I think is funny and it's sad and it's emotional And my hope is that people that have had cancer, either themselves personally or in their lives, can sit in the theater and go, yeah, that's what I was talking about, you know, or I meant that, or why didn't somebody know that? So I'm hoping it's entertaining, but I'm hoping people can learn from it, too.
10: So you interviewed all these breast cancer survivors. So how did you take the material or this research and incorporate it into a dramatic play?
0: You know, there were a number of things that maybe a dozen women said, and so I realized that was pretty prominent in what people came up with sometimes in the line at the grocery store. And so I took those lines and just kind of backtracked it and then wrote scenes up to that line, and so that it felt natural into the narrative of the story, as well as being something I wanted to kind of focus on.
10: So what is the narrative of the story, and how does the breast cancer come into play in the storyline?
0: It's a story about Isadora, who's Izzy, who's an older lady who's back for her second go-around with breast cancer treatment, and she's in an infusion center, and she meets Tom, who's a very nice, affable guy, who gets off on the wrong foot with her, and over the course of the first half of the play, he frustrates her, he makes her angry, he intrigues her, and, you know, it's the classic love story. Do They don't get along at first. They like each other. What's going to happen at the end? And, you know, I'd like to believe it's a really sweet love story, especially a love story for people that love comes later in life. My wife and I met nine years ago, and there's something about people when they meet later in life and they're more formed as people, you know, they're kind of who they really are. And then when they connect, I think the connection can be really strong because they're, they're actual selves, they're true selves. And when people accept that, I think it makes the emotion even deeper. So I went along that plane and then threw some stuff in there. Uh, my mom had Alzheimer's for five years. There's some Alzheimer's stuff in there I think that's very valid that we you know, took from our own personal family experiences. And almost everybody you know nowadays has had some connection with either Alzheimer's or cancer, and you know people don't talk about it. I worked with hospice for a couple years, and oftentimes I'd be the only person that that person who was dying could talk about death to, or how they felt about it, or what they were scared about. And people just don't talk about stuff because it makes them uncomfortable, or they think the person is going to feel bad, but everybody I spoke to that had cancer knew they had cancer. It was like they were surprised. And, you know, they were thinking those things all the time. You know, they're scared. No matter how, you know, tough they are, or brave they are, they're still scared. And that's just a normal human emotion that needs to be kind of, you know, taken care of.
10: You showed the play to the Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Foundation. And what was the response?
0: Well, this started about three years ago. And when I got done with the script I showed it to a few people and they really liked it. The cancer survivors, they thought it was really representative. So I sent it to Susan Coleman and the woman at the time, who was the CEO of the San Diego branch, she goes, this is great. This is exactly what people complain about all the time. And we love this, you know, keep us informed. So we had two stage readings set up that ironically were affected by cancer and had to be canceled. And then the third one got COVID canceled. And I didn't want to do the play on Zoom I think it's a really visceral play, so if I was going to do the stage reading, I wanted to do it in person in front of cancer and Alzheimer's people and uh, other theater people. And so that's what we did. But Susan Komen, now the new people there, they love it too, and they're co-promoting it. And on June 11th, we're going to have a benefit night for them where uh, a lot of the ticket proceeds goes to Susan Komen. And there's a couple different ways to donate to that organization uh, in the lobby and in the program anyway. I interviewed a lot of the breast cancer survivors at a Susan Komen a couple walks and you know the people that go to that are just so warm and they're so anxious to just you know remember somebody their aunt their mom their grandma their sister their daughter and they're just really good deep hearted people and it was great to be around them and they they just mean so well and they have such great stories.
10: And the play is being produced at Lamplighters so how did that happen?
0: Well, you know, it's really hard to get a new play produced. And in the San Diego, it was really hard because the subscriber bases, they want something familiar. And with COVID, it just killed so many community theaters. And they didn't have any money. And to take a chance on a new play was kind of hard, too. So, you know, I'm producing this through Lamplighters, but, you know, it's pretty much on me. They've been incredibly good and supportive of taking on this new play and structuring their support around it with my input. So I so appreciate them for, you know, not only keeping community theater alive in La Mesa, but, you know, helping a new play find a home in a place that otherwise is really difficult to do so.
10: And what do you hope that Red Jasper achieves? What do you hope uh, people kind of come away thinking about?
0: Well, I hope it makes them think maybe something they hadn't thought of before. I hope it makes them pause before they say something the next time. That could have a good or bad effect on somebody that really needs to be in a good place then. I hope they're entertained. I hope they laugh. Even though the subject matter is really serious, there's some, I think, almost knee slapping times in there that's really funny. And I hope they're moved, you know, and I think they will be. Uh, I know in rehearsal, the cast cries every night. I have such high expectations of pleasing an audience that I don't want to you know, hope too much, but I, I really believe that somebody's going to come away from that being really glad they came to it and feeling maybe differently than they did before, and I think in a good way.
10: Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about your new play.
0: Well, I appreciate it, and thank you to UBS for all your support of all the local theater and arts, and uh, I don't know what we do without you, so thank you.
1: That was KPBS Arts reporter Beth Accomando speaking with playwright Michael Madden. His play Red Jasper runs this Friday, May 27th through June 19th at Lamplighters Community Theater in La Mesa.
4: KPBS On Demand